0: My guest today is Professor Matthew Johnson, who is an Assistant Professor of Public Policy and Economics at Duke University. Through his research, he seeks to understand how regulations, policies, and other institutions shape working conditions in the US. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Gil. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with one of your recent papers, uh, Demand Conditions and Worker Safety, Evidence from Price Shocks in Mining. Uh, you say we investigate how demand conditions affect employers' uh, provision of safety. Something about uh, which theory is uh, ambivalent. Uh, positive demand shocks uh, relax financial constraints that limit safety investment, uh, but simultaneously raise opportunity cost of increasing safety <laughs> rather than production. Um, that's sort of an interesting interesting thing. It, it's It's a bit counterintuitive, but I can see why employers might do that. When things are really good, they they want to essentially <laughs> produce more and increase profits and cash flows and sort of put uh, safety uh, uh, safety in the lower priority. Is that what you're finding? So so that's, that's exactly the idea. Um, and just
1: kind of that trade-off that we outlined in the beginning of that paper, Part of the story is exactly as you said when uh, the sun is shining, make hay right when uh, demand conditions are good, I know that if uh, my firm uh, you know pumps out a lot of whatever I'm producing and we can sell at a high price, now is the time to produce and now whether investing in sa- workplace safety inputs right is is an inherent trade off with producing is a question, but some some things are right so Work, workplace safety with the occurrence of workplace injuries is a product of lots of things, but some of them are, you know, do you take time out of the day to inspect your capital equipment, you know, your production line equipment to make sure it's not defective and it's going to blow up? Do yeah. you let your workers take a few hours out of the day to attend a safety training, right? Do you upgrade the, you know, the goggles and other sort of personal protective equipment you're wearing? These are all things that can limit injuries, but they all come at the expense of short-term production. So, when times are really good, it might be much more costly for firms to undertake these kinds of actions that can, in the the longer run, improve safety, but at the short run come the expense of production.
0: Yeah, and and mining is quite interesting. As you know, um, most commodities have mean reversions in them and so mining profitability uh, tend to be mean reverting. And so the general tendency might be that um, when, when cash flows are high uh, to, to delay safety investments on the premise that things are going to sort of slow down <laughs> in the future.
1: I, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, because if you look at kind of, you, you know, so in, in this study, um, we looked at mines that produce globally traded commodities like gold and silver and copper. And, yeah, you know, if you look at the kind of time path of many of these, uh, they tend to exhibit something, not, not quite a random walk, right, but very idiosyncratic. So if the price is really high this year for whatever idiosyncratic reason, right, like rising demand for silver in some sort of country, um, presumably that will not last. So, so that means that short-term fluctuations could lead to very quick responses for exactly the reason you say. Yeah. And, 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 and I should say, so. And, and then the other side of that coin, which is what the other part of that sentence from the abstract that you read is that, sure, right, that makes sense. Firms face like true kind of what we call opportunity costs of some of these safety investments to the extent that they come at the expense of production. But, uh, you know, another kind of set of findings that we were, uh, I guess, confronting in this paper is is kind of another stream of, of work that shows that there are a lot of incentives or excuse me, a lot of investments in safety that firms can make that, that might truly be valuable for their bottom line, but mm-hmm. the, the firms might just lack the financial resources to make those investments, right. Upgrading, um, you know, various aspects of your production equipment, right. might, like other investments require some big upfront costs that firms might uh, lack due to imperfect credit markets, other, other features like that. So um and there's and there's been prior work before us showing you know, that when firms' financial conditions are more bind excuse me, financial constraints are more binding, mm-hmm. injury rates go up, right? Because firms might not be able to make these good investments. So when times are good, right, when I'm making when I can sell whatever I'm selling at a high price and I can sell a lot of it, the flip side of the story I told about the opportunity costs is when times are good, now I'll have be flush with more cash flow as a firm, which means I might be able to make those you know, valuable safety investments that I was otherwise, you know, uh, constrained from making before. So that's why the, kind of the theory is ambivalent here that, you know, for the reason I just said, a positive demand shock could reduce injuries by enabling firms to make these investments they otherwise aren't able to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But, but uh, from the data, do you see Matt that managers are maximizing the value of the firm uh, because there is a, uh, you know in abstract terms there 's a bit of a trade off right so uh, if um, if the safety upgrade is sort of a call option that managers have, uh, sometimes delaying it has has value, obviously it also has uh, <laughs> has risk uh, that's added to the firm do you Do you see them uh, actually doing this systematically, or this is more of an instinctual gut based reaction?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, you know, first we uh, when we write down our theory in the paper, we kind of start from the premise that most economic models start with that firms single objective is to maximize profit. Now, whether that's true in reality and, and you know, what the objective that true man- the true objective that all managers are seeking to uh, maximize is another question, but we start with that. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, you know, for the reasons you said, sometimes delaying these sorts of, you know, even in a, in a world without financial constraints, there could be reasons to, uh, you know, delay a valuable in, investment in safety for for the reasons you just said. Uh, yeah. So I think all, all I can really say to that question is, you know, we have really cool data in this paper. We have data on every mine in the U.S. We have uh, every quarter, we they have to report their their injury rates, their number of workers in very detailed categories to the regulator. Um, we observe right their sort of very fine grain quarterly prices of the of the good they produce. So again, these are mines uh, producing globally traded commodities. So we merge in all these data sources on all the, the global prices of these goods. Um, but really, we right we're just observing these uh, kind of realized outcomes.
0: We don't observe,
1: yeah. for example, the amount of money these minds are spending every quarter on, you know, on different kinds of investments. Um, we, we didn't, you know, I've done this in other work. I, we didn't uh, inter- do qualitative interviews with, with mm-hmm. managers for this study. We did with regulators. And, and I have found in prior work that interviewing managers just about their actions is really valuable so I think kind of yeah. as follow-up work, it would be really interesting to ask uh, managers the questions exactly that you're asking.
0: Yeah, so, so if I understand this correctly, Matt, uh, would it be correct in saying, um, if in the presence of a shock, whether it's a positive or negative demand shock, uh, that the chance of safety upgrades or compliance related activities decline uh, in the case of a positive demand shock, it's because of the opportunity cost considerations that you mentioned. in the case of a negative demand shock, perhaps cash flow related constraints so in In either shock, it declines and and so so the safety upgrades and and regulation compliance is more is this higher in stable regimes. Do I understand that correctly? Well, let, let me say back what, how you were interpreting yeah. it and see if, if uh, this, this is in line with
1: what you were saying. So, you know, kind of the, the main punchline of the, the, the framework that we set up is, um, you know, whatever. Suppose I'm a gold mine producing gold and suddenly the price of gold shoots up, right? You could say the same yeah. thing for, you know, a pizza store that, you know, one day a week, by right, The Super Bowl, they have tons of new orders for pizza, whatever. Um, right. Right. There's two channels. Right. The, the, the price of what I produce has gone up. The opportunity cost of making safety investments has increased, which means I'm less likely to, uh, you know, have my workers attend to training for safety. That should re- that should uh, increase injuries because our safety investments have gone down. On the other hand, things are good. So I have more money. I can make these valuable safety investments, which should have the countervailing effect and make injuries go down. So whether following a positive demand shock injuries go up or down is an empirical question, depending on which of these two forces dominates, right, right? which is relatively larger. So what we find in the paper is when a, a, a gold mine, a mine producing gold, uh, sees the price of gold goes up, in the following quarters, its injury rates go up dramatically. I think we see, I think our estimate is something like, uh, you know, for all of these mines, right, we, we have like, you know, a couple, like we have over a dozen different commodities here. Uh, if the price of the commodity that mine produces goes up by 1%, its injury rates increase by 0.14%. So it's, like an, uh, it's actually a pretty meaningful amount. Um, yeah. And so, okay, so that says, okay, so we, it, what that suggests is that this opportunity cost channel is much larger than the financial constraints channel, right? The extent to which a demand shock increases the opportunity cost of these safety investments just outweighs... Uh, any extent to which it relaxes the financial constraints that allow it to make these safety investments. So uh, a natural question is, okay, does that mean that these financial constraints don't matter? Like, maybe firms aren't really financially constrained. Maybe it's, it's just that, uh, you know, when these demand shocks go up or down, this opportunity cost of safety investments is just changing. And and a a thing that we do later on in the paper is we we try to grapple with, well, are these financial constraints present? There have been papers in the past showing that firms' financial conditions and their constraints do affect safety outcomes. So can we kind of replicate what this prior work has shown? And I'm I'm happy to talk about how we do this, but in the second part of the paper, we isolate uh, a way that changes in, in commodity prices, the price of what these mines produce, um, can affect only their cash flow, only their financial constraints without affecting the opportunity yeah. cost. And we find that indeed, when, the, when mine's uh, cash flow constraints are relaxed, injury rates go down, it's just that the magnitude is dwarfed by the opportunity cost channel.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. And so this has regulatory implications, right? If this is a systematic phenomenon that we are observing, um, but, so the, the regulatory uh, compliance activity if this is true, needs to be increased um, when there is a positive demand shock.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Because another thing that we, A, right, if the regulator, only, say the regulator only cares about detecting non-compliance with safety regulations. We also find that when demand shock, when a firm faces a positive demand shock, we find that non-compliance with safety regulations also goes up along with realized injuries. So it's, it's true. Um, certainly a policy implication of this is that if uh, regulators should, you know, increase the intensity of their monitoring efforts uh, to, you know, in areas industries that are experiencing uh, positive demand shocks. Now, of of course there would, you'd have to consider, I guess some, what we call general equilibrium effects there, right? If if firms know that regulators are only going to inspect me if, uh, you know, I'm in a, uh, you know, if I'm facing a good economic boom, then when I'm in a bus, I might just completely shirk on safety because I know the regulators not coming. So you'd have to balance some sort of cat and mouse game there. But I I think you're exactly right. right. There should be something uh, with which regulators should respond to um, the the conditions that might predict more or less uh, violations of their regulations occurring. And you really don 't see that, I, I think in the least in the u s at least you don't, you don 't see regulars uh, make those sorts of adjustments
0: yeah yeah so so the uh, as you say, if the opportunity cost is the dominant factor, that is the reason they're delaying safety investments, presumably they will take up those investments when demand is low mm. right i mean you, you cannot completely not do do it so you know, the decision is sort of a delaying decision, not avoidance, right? Uh, well, in a world
1: without financial constraints, yes. Um, yeah. Where if I, right, yeah, if I know that the, you know, the, the stamping, uh, the, the, the stamping equipment on my production line is old and any day now could short circuit and, you know, take out one of my workers' hands then that's true, Like it, that when it's, that's a question of when I upgraded, not if, um, and there's a rich literature and economics of this kind of timing question. Um, so I think you're right, in a world where there's, there's no role of financial constraints, then it kind of changes the implications of how firms would make these decisions. But in, in a world where firms are truly financial constrained, then there is a question of, it's not just when, I make these investments, it's also here, Right,
0: right. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes to the capital structure issue. I mean, it, it goes to how the firm is managed. So if I have high demand and I increase my uh, dividends, I come to bad demand scenario, I don't have any money. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Um, you know, you might end up with, uh, with that type of situation. Yeah, too. that's an interesting point. <laughs> So uh, so I want to jump into another paper, Um, again, a very recent paper, Regulation by Shaming, you say, uh, Deterrence Effects of Publicizing Violations of Workplace Safety and Health Laws. Um, So in the paper, you say publicizing firms' socially undesirable actions may enhance firms' incentives to avoid such actions. Uh, In 2009, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, began issuing press releases about facilities that violated safety and health regulations. So, so, so you're arguing here that such um, um, such a, a release of information to the public um, has beneficial effects uh, in terms of firm behavior. Well, that's the premise that I test in that paper, exactly.
1: So, yeah. I mean, and, and the story is is pretty simple. Um, if if I'm a firm and I know that I could make some investment that's costly to say you know take some you know result result in some outcome that would be socially desirable, right? Make some investment that would, in my case, uh, reduce worker injury rates, improve worker safety. Um, yeah. my, in, my incentive to make that investment is partly going to depend on the extent to which my stakeholders, my, my, my workers, the the public, my customers can actually view those investments or view that outcome. If I, uh, and this is kind of like a moral hazard story. If I, you know, go through all this effort to make a costly investment in improving safety or uh, whatever, you know, maybe like sourcing uh, humane ingredients, right, to take a totally other example, but my stakeholders can't observe it, then it's not, it might not be worth it for me to make that investment. That's the moral hazard story. So uh, kind of, uh, that's in a world of imperfect information. So it's very simply that if, if, if these sorts of actions by firms are publicly available, then that eliminates this moral hazard story <clears throat> and it might make it more, uh, it, you know, raise the incentive for firms to make these actions. So what I do in this paper is, is test the question of, um, you know, is one potential limiting inhibiting factor of firms' investments in safety uh the fact that if you know they have a really bad injury you know it's gonna be hard for everyone else to find out uh work, workers won't right. find out the customer the, the public won't find out and if you make it easier for the public to find out about really bad injuries it, is that going to affect firms incentives so that, that's what i'm testing in this paper
0: and, and uh, so what was the conclusion matt what did you find
1: uh so i i found that uh public so okay well first let me say what exactly i'm testing here so um what I'm examining in this paper is um, a policy change at uh, OSHA, right, which is the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the regulatory agency that um, monitors and uh, enforces compliance with, or it sets, it sets standards for safety and health regulations and monitors and enforces compliance with those standards. So, right, so OSHA, along with the many other regulatory agencies, for a long time has relied on uh, kind of standard enforcement tools to monitor enforcement, uh, monitor compliance, right? Inspections, audits, like that. In 2009, it uh, kind of ramped up a policy that it it had been using kind of in bits and pieces before to uh, really try to publicize its enforcement efforts. So OSHA is an interesting case. Um, OSHA is a very small regulatory agency. So OSHA has like 2,000 inspectors but it oversees like 8 million workplaces. I think I have those numbers roughly, right? So, you know, it's something yeah. like if OSHA was going to inspect every workplace it, it oversees, it would take 100 years or something, something like that. So, uh, right, so it's very Great. small. So, it, so the agency in 2009, uh, in an effort to publicize its, its sort of enforcement, uh, started issuing these press releases when it issued a really big fine. So the idea was uh, OSHA conducts these inspections, If it finds a workplace out of compliance, it issues uh, fines for each violation it finds. If it issued fines above $40,000 for the most part, uh, the idea was then it would issue a a press release detailing what happened. So if OSHA came and inspected, you know, Matt's steel plant uh, and fined me $45,000, it would write a press release about me saying, OSHA just uh, fined Matt's steel plant $45,000 for violations uh, of, of, for exposing workers to safety regulations, or excuse me, to safety hazards. Um, and it would sometimes get pretty detailed. Like, you know, Matt Johnson, the manager, was clearly not uh, invested in the safety and health of his workers. Um, and hmm. workers recently suffered, uh, you know, an amputation of an arm. When OSHA inspected Matt's workplace, uh, it found violations of, you know, personal protective equipment, uh, you know, follow hazards, yada, yada yada, right? Get pretty specific. So um, right. so what I was interested in is when OSHA started writing these press releases detailing these non-compliance uh issues, how did that affect firms' investments in in workplace safety? If firms suddenly knew, you know, because firms before would know, okay, if I'm violating OSHA regulations, I might get inspected. Uh, and if I get inspected, I might get fined. And OSHA fines are pretty small. They're, they tend to be in the, like, the median OSHA fine is like $600. Um, <laughs> okay. But now, suddenly, oh, wait, if I'm really egregiously violating OSHA regulations that I'm caught, I might get publicized. And OSHA itself called this regulation by shaming, so I might get shamed. Um, now, right. right? it's not just i got to pay a paltry OSHA fine now. Uh, there's going to be this press release that OSHA writes. Very often, OSHA would write these releases and a local newspaper would cover it. Or, you know, if I'm a steel plant, then kind of the, the steel industry weekly digest, right? If there's like an industry trade press, would also cover uh, and re-release this press release. So suddenly there's, there's much right. more that can happen. And, um, you know, it, in a world of perfect information, this this publicity might not matter. If everyone already knew that I, I that steel plant, was already violating... OSHA regulations, then there's a press release about it. Everyone's like, oh, we already knew that. But if suddenly there's this big publicity and everyone finds out, oh, wait a second, Matt's steel plant is much more dangerous than we might have realized, then this publicity could get really costly. So um, there were a couple features of this policy that allowed me to kind of test its effects in a pretty nice way. Um,
0: it's striking that you say here OSHA would need to conduct two hundred and ten additional inspections to achieve the same improvement in compliance as achieved with a single mm-hmm. press release. That's that's a that's yeah. a big effect. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, so so what this implies is that uh, OSHA. So do do they have a policy of publishing uh, these types of things, or this is sort of ad hoc? Well,
1: so. Uh, well, there were features of it that were a little ad hoc, or I guess maybe arbitrary, which actually was nice for me yeah. to be able to, to test its effects. So, uh, you know, I mentioned before that there was this cutoff rule where OSHA said, okay, if we find a company above $40,000, we'll write a press release. The, the nice thing about that from a statistical sense is um, OSHA might go and find one company for $40,000 and, you know, $4,100 it might go and find another company, $39,000. Both those companies have roughly the same amount of non-compliance; They're basically the same. But because one is just over this $40,000 cutoff, it gets one of these press releases and the other one doesn't. So there's this nice, you know, we call quasi-random variation, essentially arbitrary variation in very similar workplaces that do and do not get this publicity. So I, I'm able to use that variation. And then I, what I look at is if, you know, company A got just barely was the subject of one of these press releases, right? Had a, had a fine above the cutoff. Company B, you know, another part of the country just barely didn't. Uh, what I'm interested in is looking at, well, what happened to the compliance decisions and the subsequent safety outcomes of neighboring workplaces of those two, right? I'd say company A, uh, right? I said local newspapers would cover these press releases. So it's, it's really local neighbors that would find out. What happened in, in the months and years that followed I can follow how did the, the compliance outcomes, how did the injury outcomes change in the neighboring facilities of company A compared to the neighboring facilities of company B? That's what I call these spillover effects of press releases. In oh, yeah. the crime literature, this is often called general deterrence. And I, and I find these very right. large uh, spillover effects. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and, and they increase with proximity. So one thing, uh, if OSHA writes one of these press releases in the next three years or so, Um, there's a reduction in something like 70% of violations of OSHA regulations uh, in in neighboring facilities within about five miles in in the same industry. So very localized. And even even if you go further out, if I look at one of these Mm -hmm. press releases, how does it affect the compliance of of workplaces located up to, say, 30 miles away? If I kind of use an expanded ring, uh, a press release leads to about 30% fewer violations of OSHA um, regulations at these neighboring facilities, you know, up to three years later.
0: This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com so we are back um, matt uh, we were talking about um demand conditions uh, how that might affect worker safety uh perhaps uh regulators publishing um what the firm has done wrong and could have some beneficial effects you have another paper, uh, again, a uh, very recent paper on a different topic uh, entitled The Labor Market Effects of Legal Restrictions on Worker Mobility. Uh, you say you analyze how the legal enforceability of non-compete agreements, NCAs, affects labor markets. Uh, you say using newly constructed panel data, we find that higher NCA enforceability diminishes workers' earnings and job mobility. Uh, with larger effects among workers most likely to sign NCAs. So NCA's are these things that uh, employees sign uh, in some cases when they take new employment, and it basically says that if if they were to leave the firm uh, for a period of time, I would imagine, right, Matt, uh, they cannot actually go to a competing firm or something along those lines. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, uh, so so exactly.
1: So a non-compete or an NCA. Is usually a, con- a contractual restriction on a worker's ability to move to a, a different kind of job. So it, it's typically part of a worker's employment contract. Uh, I, my, my understanding is most of the time, most non-competes are signed at the inception of employment. It it, it might happen, you know, a worker might get a, a promotion in in within their firm, and with the promotion comes signing non-competes. So that can happen too, but. Um, And and right because they're parts of employment contracts, they can take on all sorts of different forms. Mm. Um, But generally, they take on the form of what you said. So there's a stipulation that says for a certain amount of time. So sometimes that amount of time is six months, one year, two years. uh, The worker, if the worker leaves, the worker cannot move to a competitor. Right. So competitors, of course, going to depend on the nature of what the firm does. So, you know, if it's a hair salon, the non-compete might say, you cannot go work for another hair salon within a, say, 20-mile radius for a period of two years, right? So there's the industry, and there's, a, there's the nature of competition. So with hair salons, competition is local, right? So there's that 20-mile uh, radius, say. If, if you're doing software engineering, competition is, is you know, national. So if you're in software engineering, sideways, you might say you can't go work for a software engineering firm for two years anywhere in the U.S., um, I, I saw a non-compete that Amazon workers had to sign that worked at Amazon warehouses. And they said, if you leave, you cannot go work
0: for a company that competes with Amazon
1: and uh, <laughs> good, luck, good luck finding a firm that doesn't compete with Amazon.
0: So, yeah. 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 So, so some of these are very broadly written, um, somewhat confusing, but at the end of the day, if, you, if it's a large firm who have thousands of lawyers on staff, um, and the employee doesn't have any on staff. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, it's not a fair uh, situation. So, but if it is enforceable, uh, I guess uh, there isn't, there aren't a lot of choices for the employee. I would imagine, right?
1: Yeah. So, um, sure. I mean, and you know, with, with rare exception, almost any employment contract can include. A non-compete, and it and it could be as broad or as uh, you know unreasonable as 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 possible in theory. But ultimately, right at the end of the day, what, what uh, matters is the extent to which it's enforceable. So, um, it uh, and if, right, enforceable meaning if the if if an employee violates his or her non-compete, if I work at a hair salon and I go right, I leave and I go work at a hair salon next door. Uh, My employer, my former employer could take me to court uh, for violating it. And then it's a question of whether it'll get enforced in court. So judges are supposed to consider some unified principles, right? Is there a real economic, like a judge considers, is there real economic harm for the worker um, violating this to the employer? Uh, And, you know, is there a scope of reasonableness? Now, judges are going to vary in how they interpret this, but... An NCP can't be so unreasonable, right? If there was an NCP that said the worker can't work for a competitor for the next twenty years, any judge would throw that out. But uh, you know, th- there's a lot of variability, it turns out, <clears throat> in how judges uh, interpret what isn't is not reasonable and what can't be enforceable. And and I could talk about where that comes from.
0: Yeah, and so so the um, the crux of the paper though is that. the the effects of that, right? The effects of an NCA on employees' ability workers' earnings and their ability to negotiate. And there are some spillover effects both within the firm and essentially within the industry, I would imagine, right? In some sense, when you sign something like that, the employee is taking himself or herself away from the pool Mm -hmm. of available employees. So it, it has an effect on the overall industry too, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and it's worth being
1: clear about this that um you know, you know, non-competes are now like federal lawmakers are talking about it, you know, it's over the last few years it's gotten a decent amount of news coverage. As far as I can understand, uh before say like four, five or six years ago, th- this th- this idea, you know, this this national conversation about non-competes was was not there. So it was, it was really kind of, you know, historically non-competes were really, I, my understanding is uh, perceived to be reserved for very high-level executives, uh, very high-skilled workers, right? Like in, like where, where knowledge creation uh, like is really important to, to the firm's production, right? So so software engineers, uh, industries where R&D was really, really uh, pervasive. But we learned five or six years ago that non-competes are actually encompass a much larger share of the labor force than we realize. So hair salons is one where I've done some work and it turns out is an industry where, some, you know, a large share of workers have to sign these things. You know, there were some very egregious cases like uh, Jimmy John's was having its fast food sandwich maker sign non-competes. There was, there was a janitor who was making, you know, $12 an hour who turned out to sign a non-compete and he got a job offer at a competitor to pay him $3 more an hour he went to take it and then his old uh, company sued him right, for violating his non-competes. So the, the the realization that these contracts were much more widespread than people realized kind of led to these questioning, like, okay, right. Maybe non-competes are protecting these assets for the firms, uh, right. By limiting workers' ability to take, you know, trade secrets, take client lists with them. But like maybe there's something else going on. Maybe, you know, th- this is a way that firms are uh, holding power over their workers, mm. uh, which would not happen in a kind of a perfectly competitive labor market. So so, so that's some some backdrop of, of why people got interested in non-competes. Now, the thing is, because people have only recently become interested in this, we, we really don't have good systematic data on individual-level workers who have signed non-competes. So there, there's, there's one or two exceptions of this. So there's some work by... Uh, Evan Starr, who's at University of Maryland, who did a nationally representative uh, survey asking workers yep. if they sign non-competes. Um, I, in some of my old work uh, with my co-author, Michael Lipsitz, did a survey of hair salons asking about it. But really, we, we don't have any time series data going back several years asking people about non-compete use, uh, let alone you know, over the last two decades. So there, there's a question of non-compete use, and then there's a question of the policy surrounding extent to which not competes can be enforceable. So what we do in this paper is we don't have any data on who assigned not competes, but what we do is we go back about 30 years and we're able to construct, uh, you know, what we call this, this panel data set, basically a data set on every year. What was the law in every state um, determining the extent to which a non compete would be enforceable? So right. there's no national law on this. It's all up to the states. This is kind of a vestige of how labor law has been conducted in the U.S. over the last few centuries. And, and, be- and because of uh, things like judicial decisions, some legislative changes, there have been changes within states over time. Um, so, so when we look at the, the ultimate thing we do in this paper is we ask, when a state makes, not competes more easily enforceable, when they make it easy, you know, easier for an employer to enforce that not compete against a worker, what happens to earnings? Now, yeah. the effect that we find is gonna be a, a sort of a mix, a combination of, um, you know, wh- when not competes are more easily enforceable, what happens to workers who actually sign not competes and what happens to these spillover effects, like you said, within industries, within labor markets. Um, yeah. And I can go into that. So basically what we find is that when not competes become more easily enforceable, on average, workers' earnings decline by, uh, you know, a meaningful amount. And I can talk about how we kind of decompose the, the different groups of workers that are affected by these law changes.
0: Yeah, I'm I just thinking about this, Matt. You know, at the high end, um, in, in high technology and biotechnology and so on, there are concerns around intellectual property, uh, and so if the employee is involved in, as you as you mentioned, you know, research and development and IP development, mm-hmm. the firm has an incentive uh, to assure that the employee doesn't leave and you know basically take all the secrets away. Um, but on the low end, like the the hair cutting salons that you talked about um it's a different situation. I also wondered in the low end you know in some sense this this uh feels like collusion between the firms mm-hmm. in the sense that suppose n c a s are uh expected and it has become sort of standard yeah uh then you don't have this problem of you know employees negotiating for higher higher pay right yeah you kind of lock somebody in uh but the competing firms might also welcome that. Uh, because you, know, you, don't, you don't have the, the pay going up because of employees moving back and forth.
1: So I think that's a, that's a great observation. So a few things. So first, um, I think you're right that non-competes can, especially if they become kind of a, a norm, can be a form of implicit collusion. I think that's right. Um, now there's explicit collusion in the labor market. So along with non-competes a few years ago, there was a realization that firms were using no, non-poaching agreements as well, which are very explicitly, yeah. right, saying we will not poach each other's workers. So um, my employer, Duke, it turned out was doing one of these with UNC a few miles away, and we, the, the <laughs> DOJ came after us for it. But also a lot of fast food companies were doing it, like Burger King franchises. If you if you formed a Burger King co- franchise, you had to sign yeah. a no-poaching agreement saying you couldn't poach another Burger King franchise's worker. So that was explicit collusion. Now... Non-competes um, could be doing the same thing. But the thing that's different about non-competes, right, in terms of the labor economics of it, is if I'm a worker and I know that, okay, if I sign one of these agreements, I'm going to lose my bargaining power going forward because, you know, everyone, I, I'm going to have a non-compete agreement. Everyone around me has non-compete agreements. Then I, you know, might, in, if the labor market is reasonably competitive, Say to my employer, if you want me to sign this thing, you better pay me more, right? Knowing that down the road, my bargaining power is gonna be uh, diminished. So for that reason, right, if if workers, if if there's some sort of choice in the labor market, workers for that effect would make workers signing not competes need to get what we call a compensating differential, like a higher wage up front to compensate them for their loss of bargaining power down the road. So now that's one possibility. Um, Now that presumes that workers know they're signing non-competes, that they have the ability to bargain like that. But, um, so I totally agree with the story you said, but the, the question, one of the questions that we grapple with is, you know, if it's a reasonably competitive labor market, one might expect that workers would have to get higher wages if they sign these agreements. And, uh, so we, you know, we, we don't necessarily find evidence of that, but that, that's one story lurking in the background.
0: Yeah, I, I'm being a bit cynical about this. So suppose in a in a market, uh, if firm, if uh, firm X is not doing well, and its competitor Y is doing well, uh, firm X could have a strategy of denying firm Y good employees by hiring them and then firing them after having signed the NCAs. Uh, yeah. Do you see anything like that happening?
1: Well, that's interesting. So uh, one, I mean, I, that, that's an interesting thing. So one thing that would limit firms' ability to take such a pernicious strategy, like you just laid out, yes. is that in most states, a non-compete yeah. is only valid if the worker voluntarily leaves. Um, okay. Now, this now in Florida and, and I think a few other states. The non-compete is, in fact, valid if, if the firm fires the worker. So, you know, maybe in Florida, firms could could get away with, with that, that kind of strategy like you lay out. But in most cases, it's really about uh, voluntary separations. Um,
0: yes. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, uh, so th- this is this seems like this is fairly conventional now. Right, Matt? I don't know much about it. So a lot of the you know high tech firms may have this uh, in the low end firms have it, as you say. So this is generally happening in employment agreements? So the best
1: data that exists on this was the data that I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago by uh, Evan Starr, Norm, Norm Bashar, and J.J. Prescott, this, this nationally representative survey. So according to their data, when they asked workers, are you currently bound by a non-compete? So I, I think I have this right, about 18% of workers, this is in 2014, said that they were currently bound by a non-compete. Now, the problem there is that you know, I said non-competes are in employment contracts, and employment contracts can be like you know, 10 pages long, very fine print. So, there's very likely a share of workers that have signed a non-compete without realizing it, right? If you yeah. know, I know yeah. that some when I get these very long contracts, it's initial here, initial there, right? I might not read it too closely. So, it, it, 18% is almost like a lower bound. So, it's probably a little bit higher than that. So. You know, it's not every worker, but if at least one in five workers are are signing these things, uh, it's it's pretty widespread, and it's it it, it they are more frequently used in high skilled occupations, um, like the software engineers, like you know R and D, like managers. Um, but you know, they are used surprisingly often, you know, at the lower end. And one thing I'll say about the hair salons, um, you know, that that's actually a really interesting industry because. In terms of the wage distribution, hair salons are on the low end, like hair hairstylists, you know, except for the very high end ones, uh, I, I think the median um, yearly compensation in that industry is like $45,000 or something like that. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, considering the fact that these workers have to go to uh, occupa- get occupational licensing go to cosm- cosmology school, you know, they have a lot of loans to pay too. But, but it is, that's also an right. industry where uh, there, is, there is real investments made by firms for their workers. So this is, a, this is an industry where uh, employers uh, train their workers for up to a year, where firms spend a lot of money attracting clients, right, who, who then form relationships with the workers. So, um, you know, the rationale for non competes, even in, in, in parts of the labor market like that, uh, do hold a little bit of appeal in some cases. Hmm.
0: So um, so there ha- has there been any challenge? I remember uh, reading the paper, Matt, uh, you, I think you described a situation where uh, certain firms um, enforce this non-uniformly. Um, so they enforce it for certain employees, but not for others. So they use this sort of a discriminatory vehicle too inside the firm.
1: So m- my sense is that's probably true. Um... But the reality is we have very little data on how these things get, you know, how firms institute these policies in the real world. So, you know, I said earlier the example of Jimmy John's, right, who had its its, its minimum wage sandwich maker saying not competes. The Department of Justice and a few attorneys general went after Jimmy John's and they said, oh, no, 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 we would never enforce that. We only had those in there because you know, we use them for our managers and we just kind of did a boilerplate contract for our workers. Um, now, sure, that might be true, right? It could be that uh, firms sort of know, you know, okay, we're only going to bother going after a worker who violates this if they're sufficiently val- you know, valuable to us or they're sufficiently high in the food chain. But I don't know, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, if I'm a worker, if I'm a Jimmy John's worker and I had to sign one of these things, uh, Sure, I might think Jimmy, my employer might not go after me, but there could still be, you know, what might be called a chilling effect. Like, you know, I I still might be worried about considering outside employment opportunities um, Mm -hmm. despite what my employer says. So, you you know, I I think at the firm level, we don't have a whole lot of information about how these are used. I mean, when I talk to hair salon owners um, for another project I did in this space, you know, th- I, I was talking to these uh, owners who had their workers sign non competes. And, and a few of them did say, you know, I just put them in there just because and I would never actually go and enforce them. But I talked to owners yeah. who did, who had very highly publicized cases of uh, very long drawn out legal battles with workers. So um, I think there's both variation across firms. in in an industry, right? And probably within firms, like you said, there's just not that much information on it.
0: Yeah, one interesting thing might be also, um, you say here, we find that higher NCA enforceability diminishes workers' earnings and job mobility. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it it is intuitive to to think that over time, uh, the earnings ability of the worker declines because the worker doesn't have much negotiation, negotiation power. Uh, but it would also, since the firm and the employee know that, I would have thought that when, when the firm asks for the employee to sign an MCA, the earnings will be higher, at least to start with. You don't find that? Well, so you, you, your
1: intuition uh, is exactly right. And, and another thing that's worth saying is another reason why you might think that signing in an NCA would actually raise a worker's earnings is going back to this uh, point that you alluded to a few minutes ago, that one reason firms have workers sign on competes is to protect valuable assets like IP, trade assets, trade secrets, client lists, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and right there's a, there's a rich literature in, in uh, organizational economics pioneered by um, Grossman and Hart, you know Hart being one of the Nobel Prize winners a few years ago, um, yes. showing that when 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 firms want to make the investments in workers, like investing in uh, in IP, investing in attracting clients. If I'm a firm, if I'm a hair salon, for example, right, I could invest a bunch of money in attracting clients. Um, but I know that as soon as I attract clients with my money, those clients are going to form a relationship with my workers. And if my workers can leave and go take the clients with them, then that's gonna be devastating to me. So, why would I bother making that investment in the first place? But hmm. if my workers are signing to not compete, and I know, okay, if I spend this money to attract clients, they'll form the relationships with the workers, but they're gonna stay here. So, it's worth it for me to make that investment. Um, we call that, it's called like the alleviation of an investment holdup problem. So, if it not compete, yeah enables firms to make these investments that they wouldn't otherwise and that can actually raise the firm raise the salon's productivity right get a lot more clients in we're all making more money me as the firm owner benefits but workers also benefit too so that's another reason why workers that sign not competes could earn more because that enables the firm to be more productive so there are those there are those countervailing stories that play like you said for workers that sign not competes both they might require a wage compensating differential to compensate them. Like you just said, they might get a higher wage because they're more productive, but they could get a lower wage because, you know, maybe workers sign these things without fully internalizing the future costs. And they have lower bargaining power going forward. And, um, you know, they're, they're stuck with that. Um, now there's, there's a few more, there's two wrinkles to that, that I want to sort of specify. So one is, um, What we lay out in the paper is that if you make non-competes more easily enforceable, not only is that going to affect the wages of workers that sign non-competes, but it could have spillover effects on other workers, even those that don't sign non-competes. And and the reason that we lay out is um, if if many more workers in my labor market have signed a non-compete, that means there's going to be less labor market churn. There's going to be fewer workers moving around. There's going to be fewer firms looking for, Uh, new vacancies just because there's more workers locked in place. And when there's less churn, there's less dynamism in the labor market. There's a lot of evidence from prior work that that just reduces wages for everyone. It makes it harder for me to find the right job, right? A lot of ways that wages increase are you climb what's called like the job ladder. You like go from job to job until you find the right one. When there's less job dynamism, it's harder for workers to do that. So when more workers sign non-competes, other workers' wages might fall, even though they themselves have not signed and non-compete. Um, so we, we, we can't, it's hard for us to test this directly because we don't have the data on non-compete use. But we do a related test where we test for these sorts of spillovers. Basically, what we do is you take uh, a local labor market, basically that straddles the state border. You take two counties, one that's in, say, like um, – Uh, Missouri and one that's in uh, Illinois, right, that are both in the St. Louis metro area. Missouri Missouri makes non-competes more easily enforceable. What we can do is what happens to the wages of worker in Illinois, but are in the county that borders the St. Louis metro area. They're in a local labor market where more workers suddenly have non-competes more easily enforceable. And what we find is that even for the workers in that border county, in Illinois right, that are in the same local labor market as other workers who are now in this new um, legal regime. Uh, when uh, Missouri makes non-competes more enforceable, workers' wages go down in that Illinois county. So, so there's, there's these further reaching effects of this policy that extend beyond just the workers that signed the non-compete themselves.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, on the positive side, though, Matt, I was thinking that, and I don't know if you have any data on this, uh, a firm's willingness to invest into, like you mentioned, invest into training, invest into enhancing human capital in general of its employees, is higher if if they have you know higher higher confidence employees going to stay. And if NCA is enforced, uh, presumably the firm has higher confidence employees employee is going to stay. So, you know, one thing I I was wondering was that do we find um, that the firms actually are more willing to invest into the employee? So both the firm and the employee in the long run are better off not just from an earnings perspective, but rather from a skills and productivity perspective. I don't know if that is true or yeah, not. Yeah, so
1: there's been, there's been some work on this. So w- one little bit that, that I did in this, in this prior work that I said I had done on hair salons. So we did the survey where we asked firms, uh, do you have your worker sign not competes? And then we asked them a whole bunch of stuff. And we found that firms that had, this firms here is a hair salon, Hair salons that had their workers sign non-competes did make more investments in their workers. So they were more likely to offer training. They were more likely to spend real money in attracting clients. Now, you know, that's a correlation. It's, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, you can't draw too much from that, but that's at least the association that I think you're getting at. Um, yeah. And there's yeah. been, there's been other work. Um, there's, there's a recent paper by Jessica Jeffers, who's a, a professor at, uh, Usually, Chicago's Booth School of Business. Um, she kind of gets up what you're saying. So if non-competes are more easily enforceable, <clears throat> firms might make those in- investments um, more likely. And I, and I believe she finds, I, m- I might be getting this wrong, I believe she does find that kind of incumbent firms, when non-competes become more enforceable, uh, do make more uh, in- investments, they do uh, spend more on R&D, uh, the types of investments that are related to firm, to workers, um, you know, the potential for workers to leave and take with them. Um, I don't know if she has training in human capital, but, um, I, I believe she might as well. Um, so, so kind of the, the so I think there, there is some evidence on that. Now, I don't know in her paper, the trade-off there is that some firms might be more willing to make those investments, which raises productivity and skills for everyone. But another driver of productivity yeah. growth is, is entrepreneurship, right? So, um, firms, you know, or a worker kind of has an idea spin, you know, creates a, a, spin-off, uh, you know, is an entrepreneur and starts a new business him or herself. And that's much harder to do when knocking are around. So, um, you know, even though some firms might raise their investments, uh, in this regime, there's, there's fewer opportunities for entrepreneurship, which actually might rate lower productivity, um, so I should say in some ongoing work, we're trying to look at exactly what you say. Um, you know, e- when you make this non-competes more easily enforceable, we're, we're gonna try to get some, some data uh, from the Census Bureau to really measure firms' uh, investments. Because one thing that I'm really interested in looking at is are firms benefiting from this? Is what's going on that firms benefit when non-competes become more easily enforceable? And what's, what we're seeing when we see that wages go down, is that kind of a transfer from from workers to firms? Um, so that's something that we're going to do going forward. But something I don't have right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so in conclusion, uh, Matt, you know, my intuition is that the value of non-compete agreements uh, to the employee, uh, my intuition is that it will continue to decline. You know, we are we are moving into a gig economy we are moving into an economy that requires flexibility rather than, you know, we don't have jobs where you go work for a firm and 30 years and retire. That thing is gone. Um, And so any situation in which the employees' hands are tied um, would have higher and higher negative value for the employee uh, over time. Uh, so, So what do you think about that? Number one. And number two, if you believe non compete agreements are uh, are are good or bad even uh, either case how do you design them what are the features you would say are are good to have in an nca if you if you think that ncas are good in general yeah
1: so so your first point is an interesting one because you're right i mean 50 years ago the kind of stylized fact of the labor market was that workers started working at, you know, General Motors right out of high school and then worked there their entire career. So before, in, in some ways, there was almost no need for non-compete. So I think what you're raising is a good point that, you know, if I was a worker 50 years ago to sign a non-compete, I might not care because I'm planning to work at General Motors wherever my entire career. So I don't care. Um, yeah. So yeah. in, in some ways, over time, the cost to workers of signing non-competes has gone up because the value of flexibility has increased. But you know, from the fir- th- this, this what you raised could partly explain why we've actually been seeing non-competes more and more because it could be that six years ago, firms just didn't need non-competes. There were maybe hmm. more implicit contracts that uh, firm right. that workers would stay around now that that implicit agreement or that implicit contract is in there, you need, you know, firms need to substitute explicit contract to, to keep their workers from moving. So you might be right that kind of like, you know, the benefits, to non-competes uh, for firms are growing because their workers are more mobile. The costs are also growing to workers. So like, you know, how those go in a, in a horse race, I guess, might depend on, might influence you know, the extent to which we see these being used going forward. So I think that's a really interesting way to put it. Um, on your latter question of, you know, how does the evidence suggest that not competes should be designed? You know, if you take my research yeah. seriously that non competes reduce wages, but at the same time, you know, there might be some good things from not competes. Maybe they get firms to, make bigger investments. Um, in some of my prior work, we also found that some in some firms, it does seem like everyone benefits from non-competes. I think what is unambiguous is that there just needs to be a bit more hurdles for uh, non-competes to be enforceable, and there should be some more guidelines that firms have to follow if they're going to have their workers sign one. So one idea that's been floated around is Um, right. I said, non competes can often be buried in page nine of the employment contract, which means a worker might sign one of these without realizing it. So, you know, I've seen one proposal that if, if a firm gets a worker to sign non compete, it it needs to very explicitly, uh, make sure the worker sort of sees it upfront before they sign one. Right. So that's something that I, that I've seen done, right. That seems like a pretty reasonable thing that, that, Should absolutely be be a requirement. Um, You know, in in terms of um, uh, other aspects of it, so I I didn't even mention the various dimensions that firms weigh, uh, that courts weigh in deciding if a non-compete is enforceable. One of them is: uh, does the firm have to show consideration? Which means, does the firm have to show that the worker received a wage compensation for signing this non-compete agreement? Right. And, and in fact that's sort of the dimension of enforceability we find that really, effect, really is driving this wage effects we see um you know i i think i think one possibility could be you just uh make a requirement that firms have to show acknowledge somehow that this is costing workers and they need to somehow pay the workers for for signing one of these because as you said if the firms are benefiting from this non-compete that shouldn't be a problem. The firm right. knows they're gonna be more productive by having workers sign non-competes. They shouldn't, it shouldn't hurt them to have to pay the worker a little bit more to sign one. Um, so I think that's a pretty, yeah. that, you know, that seems like a pretty reasonable stipulation that should happen going forward. Uh, again, that doesn't ban non-competes altogether, but just says, it, it just puts a bit more hurdles for uh, employers them, use them in a, in a more matter manner.
0: Yeah so so it sounds to me Matt, that more explicit uh requirements so the employee is saying i'm going to sign this but i need to know what what the firm is putting on the table in effect the employee is giving the firm something of yeah. value and it, there has to be some sort of reciprocal arrangement that the firm will be giving the employee some value whether it's training whether it's promise or, or something, I don't know what it is. So, but I think if I understand you correctly, that 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 has to be sort of spelled out more explicitly rather than, you know, a template type instance. I think
1: so. You know, in many ways, what that requirement is doing is setting the stage for what kind of the traditional law and economics discipline believes happen in the contracting, right? Traditional law and economics says just let the worker and the employer bargain and they'll arrive at whatever's best for the both of them because it's a sufficient contracting idea. But we, we know that from just from a lot of evidence that most contractings that happen that way. So you may, you put these requirements on the table exactly as you say, it just sets the stage for workers and employers, employers to maybe bargain over the terms of these agreements in a slightly more equitable manner, right? There's, it's not going to be fully equitable but at least right sets the, ter- the, the the bargaining table a little more level. Um, and I think that's right. Cause um, you know, when I started my work on this stuff I might've five years ago, I might've thought we should just ban not compete altogether. Uh, talking to firm owners made me realize in some cases these, these are good. So I don't think the answer is just to ban them altogether. I think it's just to set the stage exactly as you
0: say. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Matt.
1: Thanks so much for spending
0: time with me. It was really fun to talk to you. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com